This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week on the podcast, it's all about insights, insights that help you know what's important and what you might need to worry about. In this podcast, we're going to worry a little bit about things like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, overdose deaths, what to do when methotrexate doesn't work, septic arthritis, and even refractory stills disease. So let's start with overdose deaths. You know, we've heard a lot about narcotics, illicit narcotics, death from narcotics, especially in the last five to 10 years. It's still a big public health problem. MMWR had a report out this week about who this preferentially is affecting. They said that the numbers are still up, 107,000 deaths in the United States in 2021. I want to say that another report I just tweeted about said in 2021 there was like 300,000 deaths from COVID, pneumonia, and influenza, with almost all of that being due to COVID. So this 107,000 deaths is actually a big number, is it not? Uh, and what the point of their report was that there's a significant amount of racial disparity with overdose deaths preferentially, almost selectively being seen in American Indian, Indian Native uh, Alaskan populations and African Americans. This was even more so during COVID and the overdose rates were higher in blacks than whites by sevenfold. So again, if you're looking to make a difference here and wondering where the problem might exist, it is going to be in these uh, minority populations that we need to focus our public health attention. N. Haynes looked at a cross-sectional analysis of a large population, over 5,000 psoriasis patients matched with non-psoriasis patients and showed that NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, was higher in psoriasis patients. You know psoriasis patients have more liver disease, but a fatty liver is a big part of that. 33% versus 27%. That's a significant number, but what is the relative terms of that? The odds ratio by having psoriasis, you have an increased risk of 67%, odds ratio 1.67. It was even higher in men odds ratio 2.16. Age groups, especially the younger age group of age 20 to 39, odds ratios of two and a half, and, di and those without diabetes uh, of 1.7. We do know that fatty liver is not due to just being fat. Um, it is seen in diabetics. It actually, this report says in psoriasis patients, it's without diabetes. We do know that inflammation is a big driver of fatty liver disease as well. Things to consider. A meta-analysis looked at um, what happens when you treat patients with DMARDS. And in this particular meta-analysis of nine studies that looked at what happens to muscle mass as a result of DMARD therapy. Kind of surprising. The numbers were... Um, Surprising in that most patients were treated with biologics, such as TNF inhibitors, tocilizumab, uh, rituximab, even tofacitinib. And in these studies, patients got better clinically, significantly better when you look at the, the efficacy outcomes like DAS outcomes. But you know what didn't get better? Lean muscle mass and appendicular muscle mass, despite DMARD use, 
no change. What does that tell you? Means that half the battle is done when the patient gets better by your C dye, gas, DAS, whatever you're measuring. But the other half of the game is going to be how are they going to get strong? What's your, we tend to really significantly underuse physical therapy and coaching our patients to get strong. I've often thought the one banner we need in our clinic is strong, strength, you know, arthritis strong. Because if you're not strong, you're weak. And if you're weak, you're hurting more. If you're hurting more, you're doing less. Again, you got to be going the other way. And this applies to your patients who you make better with your DMAR therapy. Another interesting study came out this week about septic arthritis. I think we know a lot about septic arthritis, but it underscores some key features. It's a French cohort of over 360 patients with septic arthritis followed for two years. They had a high Charlson comorbidity index. Not surprising, right? A lot of comorbidities adds to the risk. The most common septic joint was the knee. The most common bug was staphylococcus, as you would guess. Um, antibiotics was used for an average or mean, uh, I think, of 47 days, and half the patients required surgery to deal with the septic arthritis. The sad news is 28% serious complications, 9% died. So our patients who have, who have comorbidities, who are maybe el elderly, who have arthritis, which means that they're more likely to get this, or joint replacement, Septic arthritis is a gigantically dangerous phenomenon. And being aggressive, including with lavage and joint surgery and whatnot, I think you don't hold back. You push on that. So what do you use when the patient can't take a TNF inhibitor? This particular report looked at a population of Crohn's patients. And in a large population, they showed that up to 12% of patients couldn't take a TNF inhibitor because of usual comorbidities where you might not want to use it, like what? MS, CHF, cancer, extreme infection risk, prior use of a TNF inhibitor that was uh, uh, complicated by adverse events, and even lupus. So what do GI guys do when they can't use TNF inhibitors? Their go-to drugs were mostly used to kinemab in three-quarters of patients. But vetalizumab, uh, in 25% and very few using tofacitinib. But again, this is sort of historic. I would imagine maybe in more recent years we might see that number go up as far as JAK inhibitors. But it's, uh, I think it's an interesting exercise to see what happens in other disciplines that kind of mirror what we do in rheumatology. There was an interesting meta-analysis from uh, Lisa Christopher Stein's group at Hopkins looking at JAK inhibitor use in patients with myositis, dermatomyositis, and juvenile dermatomyositis, 48 publications, 145 refractory patients. And across the board, JAK inhibitors, and these are all small reports. You know, you've heard uh, little bits and pieces of this story over the last few years that looks like JAK inhibitors also work in dermatomyositis. Well, this is sort of one reference under uh, the journal Clinical Experimental Rheumatology that puts it all together and shows that what it improves when you use JAK inhibitors is, yes, the skin, yes, the muscle weakness, weakness, but also even ILD shows evidence of improvement. I wouldn't have expected the lung to improve, but again, we need better trials, actual trials, and this needs to be a new drug indication 
for one of the companies that wants to go after this. Lupus is always a big concern for us. I've got two reports about lupus. One, the use of uh, leflunomide versus azathioprine in lupus nephritis. I don't know. We've all used azathioprine, but have you ever used leflunomide? I have sparingly. This study of 215 biopsy-proven lupus nephritis patients shows that they both did well. Their renal, re renal flare rates were 16% versus 18%. That the time to flare was about the same, 16 months versus 14 months. Those are not significant, so it doesn't matter which was one or the other. They're not significant. Uh, other things that were similar between the groups was what happened to 24-hour urine protein levels, complement levels, uh, etc., the point being, leflunomide is a DMARD. You could use it in lupus. We've had a recent report a few months back about leflunomide use in psoriatic arthritis, right? Um, another cool report looked at cryoglobulinemia, something we don't often think about in patients with lupus. And in this study that looked at 213 patients followed over a four-year period showed that cryoglobulinemia was actually quite common if you look for it. Two-thirds of patients had it. Most of them were asymptomatic. Mean levels were low at 40 milligrams per liter. But there's a small subset who get cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, 15%. They present with, as you might guess, purpura, um, digital ulcers, digital ischemia, arthritis, glomerulonephritis in 5%, and neurologic manifestations in about 1 in 5 so again, it might be something when lupus is not going well, that should be something I don't usually look for that. I might want to consider that in the future. What do you do when stills patients are refractory to your usual therapy, which could be steroids or DMARDs or methotrexate or even biologics? In this one collection that was reported this week, 50 patients who, would who had refractory stills disease were given canakinumab, either 150 or 300 milligrams every four weeks, and then some of them went on to every eight weeks. Um, followed for 27 months, eight, almost 80% responded. Response was seen within three months from most patients of that 78% who responded. Another 20% showed evidence of a partial response. The interesting thing here is it did what you'd like it to do. Patients not only respond, but then you can get off steroids. So half the patients, it showed a steroid sparing effect. Very few cases of leukopenia. As you know, stills patients should have a leukocytosis, but that could be a side effect of IL-1 inhibition. Um, and serious infection rates was only 4%. That's serious um, uh, infectious events like hospitalizable infections. So canakinumab, which now is FDA-approved for use in adult stills disease, that's kind of good news. What do you do with regard to genetic testing in your patients with stills disease? This particular study looked at kids and adults. This was, a, I think, a study from a few years ago, but I put it up because we're covering a lot of stills information this month. 162 patients with stills, kids or adults, who underwent genetic testing. Now, they already had the diagnosis of stills disease by rheumatologists. 31% had evidence of a periodic febrile syndrome that had a genetic link, things like muckle wells and traps, etc. And that's, I think, really important to note. I mean, the question is, will some of these genetic variants that predispose to fever or might also predispose to Stills disease, or maybe more importantly, are they being misdiagnosed as Stills disease? I can tell you, I have seen patients that I called Stills disease 10, 15 years ago that today I probably would do genetic testing on and find that they in fact have something else. 
When do you do genetic testing? Well, look for that next week on Room Now. We have a blog on that. So when you have stills, and whether it's in kids or adults, you have to manage fever. How good is fever management with acetaminophen? I found in a New England Journal article from a few years ago, 2015, that looked at four grams of acetaminophen given QID, one gram QID, versus placebo in 700 febrile critical ICU patients. They had to have fever greater than 38 degrees centigrade, um, and they basically had no difference in mortality. So using Tylenol didn't change mortality, ICU stay, or even LFTs. Tylenol or acetaminophen in those doses did blunt fever, but when you looked at the amount of fever reductions, it was like, like less than one degree centigrade. So usually patients with serious fever, infectious fever, auto-inflammatory fever, uh, Tylenol is not going to make a big difference. I wouldn't expect it to. So if you are giving full dose and you're not getting a response, you might be thinking it's a lot more than just the sniffles, right? It could be sepsis. It could be a serious infection. It could be auto-inflammatory disease, for instance. We reported this week the results of the ASCOR study, which you may have seen. ASCOR is an open-label study of almost 3,000 patients who were given uh, abatacept. Uh, and what they looked at in this study specifically was who was going to respond best. I think overall, I think it was about a 40% response rate um, in their population. 41% of their population was uh, biologic naive. The rest had been biologic experience. And they measured efficacy and you could say safety by looking at those who stayed on drug at two years. So response rates overall was 47% in this study. The issue here was how could you get better numbers? And they showed that when you gave it to biologic naive patients, meaning earlier in the disease, you had a higher response rate of 52% compared to a lower response rate of 46% in people who got it later in disease or after failing one or two DMARDs. In fact, it went down to 43% people who had failed more than two DMARDs. But they also showed that seropositivity also uh, augmented responses. This was best seen in the biologic naive population. In those people, uh, if they were double positive for rheumatoid factor and CCP, the retention rate was 57%. Compared to double negatives, which was 37%, a whole 20% better. If you were single positive, it was 50%, 13% better. This was blunted, however, if you were applying this to people who had already taken and failed other biologics. There, if you were biologic experienced and you were double positive, response rate was 48%, single positive 42%, and double negative 40%. So an 8% augmentation even in the biologic experience. I think there's a message here when you're looking for optimizing responses, I tend to look at seropositivity. What, what responds well to seropositivity? Abatacept, rituximab, and JAK inhibitors in my opinion. If you have a different opinion, let me know. Lastly, um, I like this study. It's about do you continue methotrexate or not? In this analysis done by Joe Smolin's group, they looked at almost 400 patients from two different trials who went on to receive placebo. It's a methotrexate incomplete responder, MTX slash IR. And in that study, 
you could either have stopped the methotrexate, or in these two studies, you could either stop the methotrexate or continue the methotrexate. So the question is, in the population, and then patients then go on to receive the new therapy, the new active drug, you know, whatever it is, right? Or placebo. They looked at those who received placebo and compared the placebo population, almost 400 patients, um, in those who were on background methotrexate or those who were not. The point being, do I continue methotrexate when someone doesn't respond to methotrexate or not? And they clearly showed by all parameters, including primary endpoint ACR20, that the placebo methotrexate patients did better than the placebo alone patients. And we're talking about 25% versus 12%. Similarly, uh, much high, not, not, significantly higher when you looked at ACR50, 8 versus less than 1%, and ACR70, 3% versus 0%. Now, we're not talking about big responses because these people are on placebo. Right? But those who stayed on background methotrexate had a better chance of doing well. The point is, combination always works better, does it not? Tune in this week to the um, Tuesday Night Rheumatology. We're doing Journal Club again. We're discussing two uh, seminal papers that led to the approval of an IL-6 inhibitor and an IL-1 inhibitor for the treatment of Stills disease. Uh, we had a great discussion last week talking about the Bujak and Bywaters papers, the two most important papers to understand Stills disease from 1971 and 1973. You can see that on the website or on another podcast, or tune in this week and watch the next Journal Club. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.